Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 48. Psalm 48 tells us that Yahweh is great. And he's to be greatly praised. Remember, Yahweh is the covenantal name of God. And what we need to take away from this is the fact that God is great. He is great and greatly to be praised. And we're going to unpack that as we go along from this text this morning. But in response to Yahweh being great, people respond in two different ways. And this is not so unlike the responses that people have towards Jesus even now. Uh, many faithful Christian pastors and teachers have noted that, that there are only three logical conclusions to Jesus' claims to be God, to be Emmanuel, to be Messiah. One, you can conclude that Jesus was a, a lunatic. He was just crazy. Secondly, you can conclude that he was a liar. He was a deceiver. Or thirdly, you can conclude that he is Lord. Now really, these three options are, are can be boiled down to just two. Either you embrace Jesus as Lord or you oppose him. Uh, this opposition may be manifested by the defiant raised fist of an atheist. Or it could be manifested by the cold indifference of the agnostic. Um, yet both responses of like these are are really those which oppose God, which oppose Jesus himself. But the other way to respond to Jesus is to embrace him as Lord and Savior. And, and when you say that Jesus is Lord, you're not merely saying that he is master. The word Lord means master, but you're not merely saying that he's master. You are, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Jesus is God. Because the New Testament uses the word Lord as, a, as the equivalent of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So when we go to the Old Testament and we read that Yahweh is great, understand that the psalmist, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God is. Is great. And, and, and great is Yahweh. And greatly to be praised. Because having defeated his enemies. He preserves his presence with his people. To protect and guide them throughout life. By his faithful love. And his righteousness. That's what we're going to see this morning from Psalm 48. Let's, let's read it together. Just follow along as I read aloud. Psalm 48. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard. So we have seen the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God. God will establish her forever. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us unto death. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in our lives this morning. Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. Now before we dig into the, 
the 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 verses themselves, I want to just mention some introductory um, comments or make some introductory comments that will help us to, to understand this psalm. The editorial title of this psalm, which is which is given in your Bible, it's not inspired, is often the city of God. But that is a bit misleading. Though the city of God is mentioned three times in this psalm, and even even at the end, you you read we as we read it together, hopefully you notice it, the, the psalmist encourages people to walk around the city of God, so not mentioning it by name, but but calling it to examine the city of God. Um it that the city of God is mentioned much in this psalm, but but though the city of God is mentioned so much, this psalm really isn't about the city of God. This psalm is ultimately pointing us to consider God himself. The city of God is mentioned only as a symbolic way to refer to God. The, this psalm, the, the theme of this psalm is found in its opening line. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. You see, there's a natural reflex. If you say that, that God is great, Yahweh is great, the natural response is that he be praised. Right? So you cannot have God's greatness without praise. Praise is the natural reflection and response to the greatness of God. So thus, Psalm 48 is better entitled, Yahweh, uh, great is Yahweh our God, or Yahweh is great. Now, this understanding is further supported by a term uh, that is used to kind of bookend, uh, to begin and end this psalm. And that term is our God. You see the term our God in, uh, in verse 1 and also our God there in verse 14. So the, uh, this term is used as, a, it's called an inclusio in Hebrew. It's a, it's a bracketed term. It's a way to bring emphasis to everything between them. So everything between verse 1 and verse 14 is about our God. It's not really about Zion. So as we talk about Zion, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, it's not really about the city. It's about our God. Uh, Peter Craigie explains this well. He says, the substance of the songs of Zion may appear superficially to be the praise of Mount Zion in the holy city. But at a deeper level, it is the praise of God whose presence and protection is symbolized by the holy mountain and its sanctuary, unquote. So it's, again, it's not really about the city. It's about God. You're called to examine God. Now, the what's called the superscript of this psalm, that is, uh, what you see usually uh, above verse 1, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's called a superscript. The, so the superscript describes this as a song and a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. A song is, it, it, this, this, it specifically tells us that this psalm was sung, we think most were, and while we've lost some of the uh, intricacies of that particular title, it, it tells us that this particular psalm was sung in the worship um, Israel's worship of God. Now, the sons of Korah says this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, the way that this is written, it could either mean that it's of them, meaning that it was written by them, or it could be translated that this was to them or for them. As this was for the sons of Korah, right? Which is which is more the way that I lean because who are the sons of Korah? Well, the sons of Korah are the descendants of Korah who rebelled against Moses. But God didn't wipe out all his descendants. Some of those descendants survived. And because they were part of the, of the Levites, they were in charge of guarding the gates of the tabernacle. But they were also given the responsibility for leading the singing of praise to God. We read about that in Second Chronicles 20, uh, verse 19. Um, there we read the Levites from, of the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. So while they might have been also musicians, we know from that passage for sure they were vocalists. They sang praise to God. They were leading that chorus of praise. Which leads me to think that this psalm was written for them, for them to lead and not necessarily written by them. But that, but that's neither here nor there. Um, it, it originates either from them or for them. Many believe this psalm is, uh, if, if, um, if it's not written by Korah, by whom, uh, some speculate it might have been even written by Isaiah. But it's just that 
its speculation. Now, what about the context of this psalm? This psalm seems to have been written during the years before Israel's exile, uh, both to um, Assyria and to, to Babylon. So we call it a pre-exilic uh, psalm. So the psalm looks back in history to uh, an event that, that the Israelites looked back upon and saw the hand of God protecting them. And yet at the same time, the psalmist, while he's looking back, he's also looking forward to a full future fulfillment of God's protection of his people and of um, Jerusalem in the future. This, this will be uh, fulfilled in the messianic kingdom to come and ultimately in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. This psalm uh, complements Psalm 46 and 47, which also discusses the Lord's uh, God's kingship his power and his protection of his people. Now, for our study of Psalm 48 this morning, we're going to follow the three paragraphs as noted in, in most English Bibles uh, for our outline this morning. So what our outline will be, verses 1 to 3, we'll see that God's greatness, uh, we see God's greatness displayed, or Yahweh's greatness displayed. Verses 4 to 8, Yahweh's greatness confirmed. And verses 9 to 14, Yahweh's greatness embraced. So first, Yahweh's greatness displayed. Or you could say Yahweh's greatness uh, declared. So the psalmist begins with a declaration. Uh, some psalms are, are a prayer. This one begins with a declaration that, that great is the Lord. God is great. And He is, he is great because he, he resides among his people and he has made himself known to them as a stronghold. If you see, look at, me at verse 1, we see that God is great for he resides with his people in Zion. So the first thing that, that confronts us is a declaration that, that great is Yahweh. And, and again, I, I say the name Yahweh to help you emphasize that this is the covenantal name of God. Uh, some English Bibles like the New American Standard Bible just use the word Lord instead of Yahweh there, and it's just spelled differently. And you could see that in your Bibles, but as I'm preaching it, it sounds the same as the other spelling of Lord. You can't tell which one. So by saying Yahweh, you know that this is the covenantal name of God. This is the, the name that God revealed himself um, to by. He, it, 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 it translated, it would mean the great I am, the one who was and is and forever will be. Yahweh is the true, one true God who is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. So when you say Yahweh is great, to our English ears, that may not sound superlative, may not sound so spectacular, because we use the adjective great a lot. I do. I think you do as well. It's just a common way we, 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 an adjective that we use. And so, in, in, in English, um, we need to, I, I guess, and understand this text, we need to be careful that we don't import the English meaning back into the biblical meaning of, of when we say God is great. Right? We need to be very careful there because, again, we use great in a, in a kind of common way. We can even use the word great to mean it's very opposite. You know, great. You know, what does that mean? It's horrible, Right. So just by intonation and body language, you're actually communicating the very opposite of what the word great means. Um, but here, and when we say that Yahweh is great, uh, I, I just want us to make sure that we understand this, that, that there is a superlative sense placed upon the word great here. We're not saying that God is great like you know, the army is their army was great or like King David was great or like Solomon was great. So this is a when we're saying that Yahweh is great, that this the, the psalmist is putting him in a category unto his own above everyone and everything else. Um, listen to one Old Testament scholar uh, explain this. Um, he explains the significance of the declaration that Yahweh is great. He said that Yahweh is great on Zion means that he is exalted over all the peoples. 
and that as king of the nations, Lord of all the earth, he rules over all. So when you say that Yahweh is great, you're saying the, the biblicist is, is saying, the psalmist is saying that he is above all. He is the greatest. He is king over all. He rules over all. The same scholar notes that Yahweh's greatness means that he rules above all earthly kings. Yahweh's greatness means that he is sovereign over other so-called gods of the nations. Yahweh's greatness means that Yahweh alone is the God who works wonders, who can really help. And this, there is no God like him. There is no God but Yahweh. No God can come to your aid but Yahweh. There is, there is no one that can come and help you that can provide redemption of your sins, that can provide for your clothing, can provide for your food, can provide shelter, that can be there with you. And Yahweh's greatness means that He is creator of the world. Yahweh's greatness means that He has the wisdom that cannot, that cannot be compared with the wisdom of anyone else. The declaration that Yahweh is great conveys the idea that He is supreme in every way conceivable by the human mind. The psalmist is in effect saying that Yahweh is the best in every category, in every way. He is the dream team. You don't need anyone or anything else. The psalmist concludes thus, because we're talking about Yahweh who is great, who is above all in, in his power, in his majesty, his might, in his works, and in his love. Because that's who he is. Then praise is to be given him. In fact, it's emphasized greatly to be praised. It's as if our praise would ascend to match his greatness, which of course it can. But the psalmist is trying to echo that. You know, Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. There's, a, there's like a, a, a poetic echoing that goes on in, in the hymn. William Van Gimmeren, a commentator, explains that the Lord is great in his royal rule. He is sovereign, powerful, and glorious. And he alone is worthy of the praise of man. You know, we are very quick to give our praise elsewhere. You know, as, as uh, the ladies are studying through the Old Testament, reading through the books of the Bible, and those who are reading, doing the daily reading, you, you've read through that, made it all the way to Deuteronomy now, you know how quick the Israelites were to ascribe praise to something else beside God. And we're very similar. We're not much different than they are. But God is the only one who was worthy to be praised and greatly praised. God is truly praiseworthy. This is the reason that when the Pharisees rebuked Jesus, when he when he had what's called his triumphal entry, right? What we call Palm Sunday, as as he entered, people were praising him, were exalting God, and the Pharisees wanted Jesus to silence the disciples. But the fact that God is praiseworthy um, caused Jesus to respond this way. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Understand that in light of what we talked about with God's greatness here in Psalm 48. God is so great that his creation is going to praise him. If the human mouth will not, God will raise up stones to praise him. That's how worthy of praise that he is. Yahweh is to be praised where he has made himself known. Look at the end of verse 1, or in the middle. It's in the city of our God. He is to be greatly praised where? Our God, our great God, doesn't reside in the far off space. Our God resides where? He's to be praised where? In the city of our God, his holy mountain. Men and women spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of dollars, to climb the highest mountains of the world so they can stay up there for, what, maybe five minutes uh, before they freeze to death. And, and they get an 
they think somehow it's just majestic. It's some, some would look at it as being closer to God. But our God makes himself known among us. You don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to go where God is. He has made himself known in the city. In fact, the city of Jerusalem here is called the city of our God. God has, God has not placed himself in a remote, far-off location. You have to go hunt and find him. But he has made himself known among his people where he can be found. Now, our God is holy. And so this, this mountain, Mount Zion, is described as his holy mountain. Right? So you would describe Jerusalem, particularly old Jerusalem and the temple, you would describe that as, as more like a hill in our terms. Um, in Ohio, it would be a mountain because that's, that's about the extent that what we have. But in comparison with great mountains, they're, they're merely here, hills. But, but it, they were spoken of and, and used a descriptive term as a mount. In fact, where Israel sits, where Jerusalem sits, in the temple sense, that is Mount Moriah. What's significant about Mount Moriah? That is where Abraham was commanded to bring sacrifice to God. In fact, he was, he was bringing his son to sacrifice his son there. And of course, God never intended that, but he was testing him, uh, testing his faithfulness. And God provided a ram caught in the thicket. And that's where um, uh, Abraham sacrificed to God. It is that mountain where, that we're talking about today, that holy mountain. Holy because it is, is the residence of God. Now, God is great. For he blesses his people in Zion. Look at verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. But let's just pause a minute and think. Beautiful in elevation? Well, physically, I would describe it, especially nowadays, as not. Beautiful in elevation. Here, here you have to go beyond the mere, the mere literal description of the term. Beautiful in elevation was was. Jerusalem, beautiful in elevation. And then the next descriptor, the joy of the whole earth. It's not just the joy of Israel. We're talking about the joy of the whole earth. And, and then this descriptor um, where it says, in, in the far north. So there are periods of history where you could say Jerusalem is beautiful. There are periods of history where you could say the people of Jerusalem and even its surroundings um, were celebrated. The, the joy of the city were joyful because of the city, because of the, but the protection that, that the city brought, the, and the, the, particularly the king that was there. But then the description, the far north, that's just, you know, scholars debate about what that is. Is it talking about the, the fact that, that Mount Moriah, where the temple was at, was on the northernmost part, and the city was kind of south of there. So if you're in the city looking towards towards the mount, towards the temple, you're looking north. Or is it talking about the fact that God was thought by pagans to dwell in the in the northmost part, meaning ideologically, not necessarily uh, uh, physically? Is it just saying that God is superior over all other gods? All, all those things would be true. But, but keep in mind that these things, while they might have been true at a point in time of Israel's, of Israel's past, they point us to the future. In the future, the city of Jerusalem will be beautiful in elevation and lifts it up. Meaning the, whole, the focus of the whole world. There will be a time in the future where the whole world will rejoice in the city. Why? Because the king is a resident there. Our Lord Jesus will rule from there. And he will rule with perfective rule. You know, we have rulers right now that, that many um, really that, that don't deserve any kind of respect or don't deserve, um, uh, well, they're just not qualified for their leadership. Whether you look at foreign countries or they're in the corruption, the corruption in our own government, you know, it's just like when, when there are corrupt leaders or inept leaders, it, it results in pain among the people. The, you know, it's like, a, it's like a groan and a sigh when we're led by people like that. 
So the joy that's talked about here is the joy of being led by somebody who's qualified, somebody who's perfect, somebody who's almighty, somebody who is all wise, somebody who is love. And that's why the, the, the city will be the joy of the whole earth because the king is a resident there. And you look at how it, that the city is described in the end of verse 2. The, the city of the great king. The city of the great king. So this isn't, this isn't looking just at, at, uh, at the past necessarily, at, at David, though he was, a, he was one of Israel's best kings, or the greatness of the kingdom under Solomon, or even one of the other good kings like Hezekiah. Ultimately, this is pointing us to our Lord Jesus when he returns to Jerusalem to rule there. He is the great king. This is the city of the great king. So on one hand, we're looking, we're looking at the past. The psalmist is looking at the past, but he's also pointing us to the future. Derek Kidner provided uh, the best explanation of, of these descriptions that I read. And he, he said this, he said, this psalm sees the city as it will be when all the nations flow to it. For it is certainly not yet the joy of all the earth. By an effective turn of phrase, it portrays the literal Zion in terms of the heavenly one, the community whose king is God, by identifying it with the far north of all places. This was a traditional expression in Israel and among her neighbors for God's royal seat. Uh, he points to Isaiah fourteen thirteen. He said it's equivalent to heaven. So looking at the far north is basically saying that God is resident there. Heaven has come to earth. Heaven and earth meet on God's throne. And the only thing I would add to that explanation is, is this, is that this, this also is a fitting description for Jerusalem during Jesus' literal thousand-year reign on the earth. The joy of the Lord will pervade the whole world. Ultimately, the beauty ascribed to the city is due to the fact that God is resident there. And note the fact that the joy, again, is that of the whole it's the whole world, the whole earth. And again, it's not, not because the city itself is so great, because its buildings are ornate and beautiful and of great architecture, but it's because God is in her midst. And therefore, for that reason, she, that city is the joy of the whole earth. This is the city of the great king. And Jesus affirms this description and might have been even quoting this part of the of Psalm 48, when he said in Matthew 35, sorry, Matthew 535, he says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Even Jesus recognized this description. This is the city of the great king. So God is great. He is great for he resides in the city of Jerusalem and makes himself known as a stronghold. Look at verse 3. God is in her palaces. He has made himself known as a stronghold. So the word palaces makes you think of things that are soft and ornate or, or uniquely done. It's really talking about his fortifications. This is a, a psalm that really rallies around the idea that Yahweh is a warrior king. Right? So it's, it's really talking about God in his strongholds, in his fortresses, has made himself known as a stronghold. Again, if you, if you look at false gods of the world, they remain aloof and far off, unknown. But the true God, Yahweh, right, comes among his people. And look at the end of verse 3. He has made himself known as a stronghold. He is the stronghold. And he's made himself known. Like there's a lot of parallels here with the idea of Jesus making God known of Emmanuel, of Jesus being Emmanuel. In some ways, the, the city of Zion, this king in the Old Testament is like, is like Emmanuel, God with us. Then you move to the New Testament as fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. God with us. God has made himself known to us. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know him without him making himself known. He's made him known as a stronghold. Now, 
Uh, there's something very wonderful for us to ponder here. Just as in this psalm, the king has made himself known as a stronghold for those residing in Mount Zion. God has made himself known to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate stronghold of all those who turn to him in faith. Just as the king's presence made the city a stronghold, so too God's presence with us in the person of Christ and in us through the person of the Holy Spirit makes us secure no matter when and where we live. No matter what happens, God is with you. Hence, when you move to the New Testament and you read passages like, be anxious for nothing. Why? Because God is near. It says, God is near, be anxious for nothing. So are the residents in Jerusalem anxious? Right? We'll see that's not the case. Why? Because the king is in his fortress. The king resides here. That's such a precious truth for us to ponder as you go through difficulties, no matter what it is, wherever you go. Right? If you're a believer in Christ, the king, the great king, is there with you. Now, notice that from the vantage point of the, of the psalmist, God has made himself known as a stronghold. It says, say he will make himself known as a stronghold. It says what? He has made himself known as a stronghold. The psalmist is looking at some event in the past. Now, what historians have debated, what event is he referring to? Well, the psalmist doesn't, doesn't identify with that. Um, it, is, it could be a, an event linked with the defeat of the Assyrian army in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah turned to the Lord for help and, and the Spirit of God just wiped out 188,000 soldiers of the Assyrians overnight. Just wiped them out. Could refer to that. Um, some have some supposed other periods of history for this event. But, this, but here, it's not important to us or else the psalmist would have identified it. So while the historical events remain a bit of a mystery, the description of God's deliverance of his people is clear. And again, we have one eye towards the, towards the history, to what's happened, and another eye towards what will happen, what the Lord will do. But, but in the context of the psalm, he says he has made himself known. And look at verse 4. It begins with that word, the connection, for. So, so he's pointing not to a, like a specific, or he's not telling us about a specific historical event that we can identify, but he's describing the event to us. From verses 4 to 7, we see the description of the Lord showing himself uh, or making himself known as a stronghold to his people. So God's greatness is confirmed by the panic-stricken response of those seeking to destroy Zion. And when they seek to destroy Zion, they're seeking to oppose and destroy God. So it says there in verse 4, For lo, the kings of the earth assembled themselves. And again, there's some reflections. There's some, there's some common descriptions with what we see in Revelation, when the kings of the earth assembled themselves uh, to revolt against God. He says they assembled themselves. They weren't, they weren't coming for a party. They were coming for war. They were coming to make war with Mount Zion. It says they, they passed together. That could refer to them marching in battle array as they head toward Zion. Verse 5 tells us what happened. And the, the action here in, in Hebrew, because the way the Hebrew is, is written, it, it just happens in very fast uh, staccato type fashion in, in this text, meaning boom, 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 and it's done. Right? Uh, in English, it's kind of more drawn out. But, but notice the progression. So they assembled themselves, they marched in battle array, they passed together, they saw, and notice the word it is italicized, because in the Hebrew text, there's no object that they has identified as what they see. They saw, then they were amazed, then they were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. What did they see? As they marched in battle array. Well, we're not told. But the context suggests that they saw that the king was in Jerusalem. And in fact, you can imagine that they saw the Shekinah glory of God. They saw God the warrior. 
you know, the Old Testament uh, affirms that, that no man, no sinful man can see God and live. You cannot see the holiness of God and live unless you are made to be holy, which is why God did what he did in sending the person of Jesus Christ to make us holy so we could be with him. So this is sort of like what happens to these armies, these kings. They saw and they were amazed. And that, that amazement is not in the idea of worship. Um, that is the idea of being just terror stricken. They, they expected to be able to say what Julius Caesar would famously declare after one of his battles. You know the phrase, I came, I saw, I conquered. They, they expected that. We, they expected to come and say, we came, we saw, we conquered Israel and Israel's God is no more. That's what they expected to do. But that's not what happened. They came, they saw, and they were conquered. And conquered without really much of a battle at all. Because they were so terrified. They were left struck or seized with panic. You know, and when, you, when you're in panic mode, you can't, you can't run and you can't fight. You're just frozen. That's what this. That's what they were. Um, as John MacArthur notes, these kings had come arrogantly to destroy Jerusalem, the Zion of God, but the but the God of Zion surprisingly and powerfully devastated them. And to emphasize this, this the overwhelming destruction, or the, just the this the the force of God upon them, this this victory. The psalmist uses two analogies in verses uh, 6 and 7. You see that the panic sees them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. So you know, women who have who are born children and, and men who have been with your wives while that's going on, you know that, that they can't do anything else when the labor contractions hit. Right? It's just all consuming. You can't do anything else. Right? So th- there is such pain going on in this in the in the terror of the moment when these when these kings saw the the glory of God that they were just seized with pain with panic they couldn't avoid it and then in verse 7 there's another analogy given with the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish so what does the ships of Tarshish have to do with this well the ships of of Tarshish while we while we know not exactly uh, what what city Tarshish represents, possibly a port city in Spain. The ships of Tarshish were ocean-going vessels. They were they were the largest, strongest ships known at that to man at that time. So these are the big ocean-going vessels, the ones that can sail the seas and survive. And yet, the the the, the this massive strong ship is sunk by easily by God's breath. He says there in verse 7, you, with the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. So God doesn't even have to send a flotilla of holy ships to fight, the, to fight these men, um, these kings. He merely brings the wind. And again, you, we see that in Jesus' own life, how he controlled the wind, the storm that, was on the Sea of Galilee that was going to sink the ship, to sink that their fishing vessel, and Jesus instantly calmed the storm. But he can also go the other way. He could take a calm sea and cause it to have such a massive storm that it would sink any vessel, even the mightiest creation of man. And that's what we're to see with this, that no matter, no matter what happens, no matter how much strength or how much power that man creates and has, God is greater still. Uh, commentator Alec uh, Moter notes the ships of Tarshish were capable of braving the open sea, man's greatest maritime achievement, but were nothing before the winds of God. You think about our most powerful weapon now, right? Nuclear weapons. That's nothing compared to God. Because who controls the nucleus? God. So weapons, man's weapons against God cannot stand. He just merely blows them 
and they are gone. They can offer him no resistance. And you see, not only is God's greatness confirmed by his victory over his enemies, but also you see God's greatness confirmed by the people of God at Zion. Look at verse verse 8. As we have heard, so this is the psalmist saying, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, God will establish her forever. So the psalmist is saying, God, we, we heard about your great victories in the past. We heard that. But now we've seen it. Right? So he's talking about this, this defeat of the kings. The, the psalmist is saying, we've seen it now. Not only can we pass along what we have heard, but now we can testify with our eyes. We have seen, we have behold, that you are a stronghold to those who rely upon you. And he emphasizes that here with this term in the city of the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. What does the word host mean? Well, he's not talking about hospitality and you hosting someone else. This is the Hebrew term Sabaoth. The term Sabaoth means armies. It's a military term. This is Yahweh of armies. You know, in Luther's hymn, when, you, when we're talking about Christ, he is, when we talk about Christ, he's saying he is Lord Sabaoth is his name, right? Sometimes I, and I was confused in this when I was a young believer, when, you, when you're singing that hymn, it says Lord Sabaoth is his name. You're not talking about the Sabbath. It's a different word. This is Sabaoth. This is the Hebrew term meaning host, armies, right? That's why that hymn says that he, you know, mighty fortresses are God. So it's very similar to what we're being taught here in, in Psalm. That, that the God is our fortress for those who seek refuge in him. And notice there the psalmist says he will establish her forever, the city forever. Why? Because God is loyal and he will work in that day to, to protect his, his, his people. Now you might say, well, where is Israel today? Where is Jerusalem? Where is this beauty today? Well, we will say that, that historically the glory of God departed the temple, departed Jerusalem, and vacated. But as Paul tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, God's abandonment of his people is only temporary. He will return. One day in the future, the Lord will bring about a renewal of his people Israel. Think of Isaiah 53 here. So they will believe in him, and then he will return to rescue them. The glory of Israel will be the glory of Yahweh. He will be in the city and he will rescue his people like what is described in what we see described in Psalm 48. Upon these things, the psalmist wants us to reflect. Notice, notice that um, after he says God will establish her forever, there's the little word off to the right in your Bible, Selah. It's a term used by the psalmist to either respond to or pause for reflection on what is just said. I mean, when you when you see that, just just slow down just a little bit, pause and reflect upon what we have just learned about God and His stronghold, the testimony that has been confirmed that God uh, God is great, and that greatness has been confirmed by His people, that God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. In, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Ultimately, this is talking about the, the, Lord, the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that the Lord will establish forever and ever. He will be with his people forever and ever. Well, what a blessed, blessed thought. But after, after seeing the, the greatness of the Lord confirmed in verses 9 to 14, which we'll cover quickly, we see Yahweh's greatness embraced. And this is where we get to the response. So in the first part of the hymn, verses 1 to 3, you see God's greatness proclaimed or declared. But then in verses 4 to 7, what is the response to that greatness? And that is opposition. People oppose God, go to war with God, and they're defeated. Verses 9 to 14 shows us a, a different response to Yahweh's greatness. And that is that greatness embraced. God's greatness is embraced by those who contemplate his loving kindness. 
Look, look at verse 9 says, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, which fits well with the, with the idea of the, the sea law that was put there, to pause for reflection. We have thought on your loving kindness. The word thought there is, is, um, is uh, the idea of, of to think on, or is to picture or to formulate. To sit there and, and dwell on the idea. Meditate on that. And what do they meditate on? On your loving kindness. This is the Greek word hesed. It is uh, loyal love. I think is, a, is one of the best ways to think about that. Uh, it's a loyal love. God is always loyal to those he loves. He, he, he cannot be otherwise. Um, there's nothing more moving or more beneficial to us than us contemplating the loving kindness of God. And this contemplation happens where? In the midst of your temple. Again, rut with his people, God has made himself known and they worship him there. And then verse 10, we see that God's greatness is embraced by those who reflect on his righteousness. He, he says there, as is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. So, as your name, because the Lord has won a mighty victory, his name is high and lifted up. And, and he's saying, so is your praise. May the praise be as high as your name, O Lord. And, and we're talking about praise. Um, uh, Derek Kinder helpfully explains that the name of God stands for his self-disclosure and his praise is both the renown he deserves and the response it awakes. Think about that. His praise is both the renown he deserves and the response it awakes. If the Spirit of God lives within you, when you see the greatness of God, you will praise Him. You cannot do otherwise. You, even if you wanted to restrain yourself, which you won't, you wouldn't be able to, right? Because the Spirit of God within you would declare His praises. And, and it's mentioned here, your right hand is full of righteousness. Alan Ross notes the significance of this. He says the right hand is figurative, for the power of God. His power is characterized as completely righteous. He acts in accordance with his nature and his word. We would say that he is as good as his word. And here the psalmist has in mind the Lord's defense of his holy city and his people by destroying those who planned to destroy it. So it, it was a righteous judgment that God brought upon the kings that, are, that were destroyed and these, their armies that were destroyed by God in verses 4 to 7. And then we see that God's greatness is embraced by those who dwell on his judgments. We see the idea of judgments brought out in verse 11. Mount, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Again, he's using a poetic language, talking about the city rejoicing. Well, the, the brick and mortar don't rejoice. You know that. He's talking about the people of the city. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. Who are the daughters of Judah? It's a... It's an idiom that, that, that is uh, pointing us to the cities that were, or the villages that were surrounding Jerusalem. In other words, that joy is not going to be contained to uh, Mount Zion itself, but is going to spread because of your judgments. Talking about directly to God. This is praise directed to God because of God's judgments. What judgments? The ones who he judged the kings. He judged the wicked men who wanted to attack his people, ultimately wanted to attack God. God was Righteous in judging them and, and righteous in that judgment. And look at what he, what he says. They're righteous uh, because of your judgments. Sorry, um, let the daughters rejoice, Judah, because of your judgments. Now, we see the greatness of God is embraced by those who examine his strength. In verses 12 and 13, the psalmist invites us to consider the city of God. And, and this might have been a case where after a victory, in some cases where, where the soldiers and the people of the city walked around the walls of the city. One commentator explains that when Nehemiah finished the wall of Jerusalem, he had two processions counter-marching on top of the wall for the dedication. After the lifting of a siege, it would be equally appropriate to do the rounds of the defenses singing such a psalm as this. This isn't, this isn't um, a way to put glory in the brick and mortar of Jerusalem. This isn't a call to put your trust in, in physical defenses. This is a call to see the, 
the strength of the city is tied to the strength of God. The, the city was protected because God was within her midst. So the, the purpose of considering this where he says, he says, walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts or defenses, go through her palaces. And again, that word palace probably should be thought of in the, in the terms of defenses or fortresses, right? the strongholds within her, that you may tell it to the next generation. So look at, look at, look at God ultimately at how God defends and protects his people. And then we're told the reason why. Why? Because the psalmist is, is, is telling this to people who saw God rescue and deliver them. And then he's saying, consider this. Look with your eyes. You've seen the, the, the feet of the armies. Now look at the city. The city was protected. Is there any damage to the city? None at all. Right? It's, it's intact. We're safe. Ultimately, because God is there. But the purpose is, is told to us. The reason for this consideration is told at the end of verse 13. That you may tell it to the next generation. We we read about that and we think, oh yeah, that's nice. But what is that telling them? It's telling them there's hope. The next generation means what? You're going to live. You're going to live and you're going to have children. And they're going to have children. And they're going to have children's children. No matter how desperate the times get, God's people are called to live with hope. This is something I was reflecting on with someone just before the service. Even when times get bad, even in times of war, God calls his people to live with hope. It is a time to bear children. It is a time to build houses. It is a time to plant gardens. Okay? I mean, we live with hope. We live with the fact that this world isn't going to end in a holocaust of nuclear war. Okay? God's word is clear that when God brings judgment, it will be him judging the world because the kings of the earth will, will try to hide from him. This is God. The world is not going to end by an accident of man. So you can rest assured of that. God is a stronghold for all those who trust in him. And look at how verse 14 ends. We see here that God's greatness is embraced by those who trust him to guide them. For such is God. Meaning this is our God. Take stock of what he has done the victory he has won and the stronghold that he is and, and how in his loving kindness he provides and makes himself known, has protected you. This is our God, our God forever and ever. Right? He's never going away. He's always going to be there. And he says he will guide us unto death. Now, some have, some have wondered about that unto death. Well, there's two different ways that I would see that. Um, the Legacy Standard Bible says he will guide us over death, which helps us understand the concept, if, if that's uh, original. It's, it's the idea that, that he's going to guide us past death, even beyond the grave. He's always going to be there. And if you translate until death, it's not talking about that at death and God abandons us. It's through that. But there's actually, uh, it's curious that this phrase until death might actually be part of the uh, superscript of the next of the next uh, psalm, so it might actually this psalm might have actually originally ended. He will guide us, period, and and that's really the idea. He's going to be there, and the idea of guiding is is like that of a shepherd who leads us and is there with us to provide for us shelter, protection, food. You know, just take like a Psalm twenty three when you hear the word guide us. He is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Here in Psalm 48, he's pictured as the great king. And as the great king, he will love his people eternally. So in Psalm 48, we, we learn that Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. His, his greatness is declared. His greatness is confirmed. His greatness is embraced. So what do we do with this? Or we'll reflect upon the, the face of the face of your God. Reflect upon who Yahweh is, that He is great in the full biblical meaning of that word. That he's, He is above all. He is superior to all. And since He is great, He is worthy to be praised. Praise is owed to Him. Praise is a response elicited by His greatness. 
So what do we do with this? Well, again, we come back to where we began. There's two responses, two general categories of responses. Either we're going to oppose God and be rightly judged by Him. And for those that pursue that path, be warned that your future is not so different from the kings in verses 4 to 7. In man's pride, he think he, he, can, he can go toe-to-toe with God. Satan thought that too. He thought he would even be greater than God, but that, that was not the case. It wasn't even a battle. You can't even put up a fight against God. So either you're going to rebel against God and fight against Him, or you're going to embrace His greatness by trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And, and again, there's another linkage here. Each with, with between the New Testament and the fulfillment in Christ and Psalm 48. And, and that is this. In Psalm 48, every knee bows. The knee's not mentioned, but they're worshiping the king. The, the kings bow in defeat to the king. Those who worship him as people bow in reverence and worship to him. So thus is it any wonder when we come to the New Testament in Philippians 2, we read read this about Jesus. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will confess that Jesus is is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. The Lord will guide His people, those who trust in Him. He will guide you into eternity. And to try to to help us both take hold of the past with one hand and look to the future on the other, I'm going to close with reading Revelation 20. There are a couple of places I could go, but I want you to look at Revelation 20 with me. You can either, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'll begin reading verse 7. And this is um, jumping forward to the millennial reign of Christ. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then heaven, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those who oppose God have a future in the lake of fire. They will be destroyed as quickly as the, as the kings that were assembled against Jerusalem were destroyed in Psalm 48. And you see here in Revelation 20, they will be destroyed in an instant. Fire from heaven will devour them. The Lord could send legions of angels to battle them, but He doesn't bother. He just sends fire from heaven to devour them. It's pretty sobering. And again, allow this to to help you embrace the greatness of God. 
Because he's a loving God. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, to atone for our sins. And he was raised in newness of life. And he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. And he's building his church. He's calling sinners to himself. And anyone who believes in him looks to him for the stronghold, for safety and refuge from sin, from Satan, from God's judgment. If you look to him, he will rescue thee because he is a faithful God. He is a loyal God. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we just want to give you the praise and worthy that you are truly that you truly deserve. Thank you, Lord, for your righteousness, for your judgments, for your strength and power and might. We also thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness. That you make yourself known, that you make yourself resident with your people, which implies that you're going to complete the work in us which you've begun so that we are completely holy and righteous and can spend eternity with you, rejoicing in you. Oh God, do your work in our lives, conforming us more to the image of Christ and help us proclaim the great gospel, the wonderful gospel of the great King who is and who is to come. Oh, Lord, just do your work in us and through us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.